Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is legendary musician Richard Thompson. He is widely beloved for his work with Fairport Convention and Linda Thompson. His songs have been covered by Elvis Costello, David Byrne, Bonnie Raitt, Emmy Lou Harris, and R.E.M., among others. His new book is B-Swing, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Richard, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's an honor to have you here. And Richard, first, I have asked a lot of authors this question, but I imagine for you as a musician, uh, there is an extra level of difficulty here. My question is, how have you been doing this past year and how are you seeing both the promotion of your new book and the promotion of your music to be during this time that is unprecedented for so many of us? It's been a tough time for musicians. Uh, almost all the musicians I know are basically out of work. Uh, not much you can do about it. Um, I've been able to do some home recording, which has been fantastic. I've been able to write lots. Uh, I've, I've written the next couple of albums, so that's been fantastic. Uh, but like everybody else, I'm itching to get back out there, get back on the road. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it's, it's been a tough time. Um, you know, I finished the book really before the pandemics. So uh, I've, I've been waiting a while for, you know, the, the book process, which is much longer than the recording process. Mm. You know, it's, it's quicker to get, get an album out than it is to get a book out. Uh, and... Uh, and I suppose that, you know, not being able to go into a bookshop and, uh, and do a little reading here and there, uh, it's um, something I'm missing and something I hope I can do perhaps uh, next year. Um, but, but uh, you know, we've been doing very well with the virtual process. And uh, this book has been selling surprisingly well and, and it's uh, got lots of great reviews. So I, I, my only fear is that I'm going to sell more books than I do records. Oh, <laughs> well, that's something that um, I wouldn't worry about being afraid of, Richard. Um, either way is amazing. And we've actually, before this podcast is aired, we've sold out of our first order here at Quill Ridge Books. Wonderful. Yeah, and I'm um, looking forward to getting more in. Um, I mentioned in your bio a moment ago, all of the amazing artists that have covered your songs. Uh, Elvis Costello, who interviewed you the other day, I believe. Uh, David Byrne, Body Rate, Emilio Harris, R.E.M., etc. This must be old hat for you at this moment in 2021, but maybe thinking back to the first time that another high-profile artist covered one of your songs, what was that like for you as a performer to hear something you had written filtered through another artist for the first time? Uh, it was a bit thrilling, to tell you the truth. Uh... I think I got my first covers. Uh, we did a song uh, with Fairport Convention back in 1968 called uh, Meet on the Ledge. And we immediately got two cover versions um, as singles, you know, that came out. I, I mean, neither ours nor the other two covers uh, did anything in the charts particularly. Uh, I think they all sold about eight copies each. But, um, but it, it was the beginning of that process. And I had another song covered by New Zealanders who, who were this kind of uh, very poppy um you know folky poppy band uh i had to come from the pointer sisters fairly early on that was uh very impressive yeah <laughs> and uh you know since since then a steady uh a bunch of covers that i can't actually keep up with now which is fantastic in some ways but uh i do get a lot of cover versions um if i can hear them i i, I try to hear them uh sometimes i like them sometimes i don't to tell you the truth uh 
you know, sometimes it's like sending your son off to to, to stay with the wicked uncle for a couple of years and, and you know, comes back mm. drinking and smoking, you know, mm-hmm. metaphorically speaking. Um, but, you know, I, I have cover versions that I'm very fond of. Um, uh, Bonnie Raitt did a great cover of Dinner of the Day, which, which, which I, I love very much. Um, so, you know, generally it's a nice feeling. It's also nice when your peers like you. You know, if the audience likes you, that's great. If, if, the, if, the, if the press likes you, that's great. But if your peers like you, that's mm. something else. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Richard. Let's dive into this amazing book, Bee Swing. Uh, in the beginning of the novel, you describe the London fog of your youth, and you write the line, I suppose even poison is something you can grow fond of. Can you give us some context for this line as it pertains to the London fog and perhaps as it pertains to other things as well? Uh, well, you know, we've all read Sherlock Holmes. We've all read Charles Dickens. You know, that London fog that's been there certainly since Victorian times, um, mostly caused by, I suppose, coal fires, uh, and, and then subsequently uh, um, coal-fired um, uh, uh, power plants. Uh, and, and they started to clean that up in the 50s and 60s. Uh, but as, as a kid, I loved it. I, I, it's so fantastic to not be able to see your way to school, for instance. I mean, how great is that? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I couldn't get to school today. <laughs> couldn't find it. Um, so, you know, as a kid, it was kind of mysterious and romantic and, and kind of wonderful that for the world to change in that way. You know, the, the way a snowstorm would suddenly change the landscape of, of your hometown. You know, you know, the fog was like, had the same effect, you know, it was this mysterious thing. And it kind of connected you to Charles Dickens and Sherlock Holmes. I, 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 sort of, I sort of, you know, I love that. Um, uh, was there a, a different kind of fog going on in my life? Well, you know, um, I, I suppose I was a very head in the clouds kind of kid, and um, it took me a long time to really grow up in that way. I, I was always in my own world, in my own fantasy world, in my dream world, and so I didn't really deal with the world very well uh, until I got to about the age of about sixty-five. <laughs> so um, there you go. Yeah, right. Thank you so much. And speaking of school. Richard, uh, when you were a schoolboy, you didn't really care for the things that your school had to offer. What you cared about was the guitar. Uh, for our listeners, can you describe this time of your life when guitar was the most important thing in the world to you, the young Richard Thompson? It was an exciting uh, time, really. Uh, uh, yeah, the guitar was hitting me from all directions. So, so um my father had guitar records. He had Les Paul records. He had Jango Reinhardt records. Had Lonnie Johnson records. Uh, and my sister had the rock, rock and roll records. She, she had, uh, you know, Elvis and, and, and Buddy Holly. So um, this stuff was sort of hitting me from all sides. And when a guitar appeared in the house, um, intended for somebody else, I, I just grabbed it and commandeered it, and I wouldn't let anybody else play it. Uh, so, so it just seemed like that was the thing to do. It, it seemed sort of sexy and wonderful and. and uh, this is what you know um, rock and roll people played and uh, I seem to be fairly uh, adept at the guitar so, so, so I kind of uh, persevered uh, and then I took classical lessons so then I was that was an- another direction coming at me uh, uh, classical music as well um, so it, it was kind of inevitable that the guitar and I would become friends yeah absolutely and um, you had mentioned 
a Les Paul record a moment ago. Richard, I love the song Caravan. Uh, I myself am a guitarist and a drummer, so I really dug the way you described the moment uh, that you first heard the recording of this tune that was played by Les Paul on the guitar uh, in the recording that you were hearing at the time. Could you describe this moment for us and how it shifted your perception of the world and what the world had to offer? Well, I was extremely young the first time I heard uh, that record. The first time I'm aware, I, was, I could have been five years old. Mm. Uh, and, and in the book, I described that, that I'm lying on the, on, on the rug uh, right next to the speaker on, 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 on the record player. And uh, this, this sound comes on, and it, and it sounds like um, outer space music or something. Yeah, but, you know, Les Paul was, uh, you know, the first multi-tracking recording artist. Uh, he had the first multi, uh, first eight-track machine built. Uh, but on that record on Caravan, he's he's got going from from uh, cutting machine to cutting machine. He's going backwards and forwards, overdubbing every time uh, a new generation on, onto disc. Uh, extraordinarily complicated and difficult process. Uh, and Les is playing percussion. He's playing God knows how many guitar parts, three or four guitar parts. He's, he's playing a double bass. He's playing accordion on it. Um, it's a real one-man band, and it just sounds absolutely fantastic. And Les was also an electronics genius. So his mm. records sounded better than anybody else's records at that time, you know, 1940s. He was, like, way ahead of everybody. And uh, the, the, they, they'd all come, come to Les uh, to learn about electronics, you know, like Bing Crosby. Uh, and all, all the, uh, the recording guys from Capitol would all go to Les's little garage to figure out how he was getting these amazing sounds. So he was a real pioneer. And I'm so glad that I was able to hear that at such a young age. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Richard. I think a lot of people think of Les Paul um, nowadays just as uh, someone whose name is on the headstock of a Gibson guitar, not realizing how instrumental he was in the process of um, creating amplification for guitars and, and multi-tracking, as you say, and all of this. Yeah, and you know, slap echo, uh, you know, flanging, phasing, all, all these things uh, were pioneered by Les. He was an electronics genius. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Richard. Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Richard Thompson. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Richard Thompson, author of B-Swing, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Richard, because we are a podcast that is involved with books, I want to ask you about something you wrote in your epilogue, and that is when you write that in Britain, it took until the late 1950s uh, for the generation of boomers to begin to have a cultural impact, and it took until after the Lady Chatterley trial for them to have the power to revolutionize music 
fashion, photography, film, and visual art. Uh, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar, can you tell us what was the Lady Chatterley trial and why did it lead to this cultural tipping point that you describe? Uh, I think it was 1960, 61 or two. Um, uh, D.H. Lawrence wrote a book called Lady Chatterley's Lover, which some of you may or may not have read. You know, and it's it's a bit, you know, um, uh, graphic in places, but um, not gratuitously so, I don't think. Um, you know, and, and the language is sometimes crude, which kind of reflects the characters uh, in the book. But um, it was considered uh, an obscene publication and was taken to trial. And uh, I think it won eventually. But, but that was a kind of a watershed moment um, in British culture, along with, with the Christine Keeler scandal. There was a big political scandal. Uh, it's called the, the Profumo Affair, in fact. The politician was, was caught with his trousers down, literally. And, um, and you know, from, from that moment, you felt uh, the, the establishment was, was eroding. And the establishment about it, uh, there were still people um, like Harold Macmillan, who was a, a true Edwardian, really. He was from this, you know, he was born in the Victorian era. And uh, what was being dismantled was really Victorian Britain. And uh, it was inevitably going to happen because of the size of the baby boom generation. They were always going to have a big influence on whatever culture was going to come along. And... Uh, it took people like, um, you know, Monty Python to uh, ridicule um, everybody, uh, the police, judges, uh, the royal family. Uh, suddenly anybody could be laughingstock. Uh, and and that, that, that wasn't the case before. So um, this is a kind of a freeing, really, of, uh, of British culture. And I think from that point onwards, we didn't really look back. You know, the, the Beatles arrived. Um, you know, uh, London became a fashion centre for young people. Uh, it became truly the music centre of the world for a while. So um, it, it was just a fantastic place as a teenager uh, to be growing up in that world, that what, what incredible world of, of uh, youth culture. Absolutely. Thank you, Richard. And can you imagine a book going to trial like Lady Chatterley's Lover did or Ulysses uh, in the current environment in 2021? It would have to be pretty, uh, pretty radical uh, kind of book. Um, it, it'd be hard to shock people that much, I think, these days. I, I think I think we've seen everything, but I could be wrong. Maybe there are other things that uh, haven't quite emerged yet. <laughs> but uh, it seems unlikely, doesn't it? It does. It does. Um, thank you, Richard. And if you don't mind following me further down this trail for just a moment, there's a documentary series airing right now by Ken Burns uh, on Ernest Hemingway mm. on PBS. And it is making me think of a time uh, when we were able to have these famous literary authors like Hemingway, who were giant cultural figures in America and elsewhere. Um, I can imagine a world in which we have another band that hits like the Rolling Stones or another musician that hits like Jimi Hendrix, but I'm not sure if we will ever have another Ernest Hemingway. Uh, do you think it is possible for a literary author to reach that level of celebrity in 2021? Well, they'd have to be uh, a bit of a character as well. I mean, Hemingway's reputation wasn't just for his writing, it was for his lifestyle and his persona. Mm -hmm. um, he, he was a larger-than-life character. There's no question about it. And, and uh, you know, hard-drinking, uh, hard-living, um, put himself into dangerous situations endlessly. 
Mm. And uh, you know, kind of self-destructed in the end. You know, uh, um, got married how many times? Three times? Four times? Yeah. Uh, but this is this is colourful stuff. You know, I I think if you had someone who who was a great writer but but also had you know that that kind of insane lifestyle, that, that then maybe you could have another Hemingway. But um, most of the great writers I can think of uh, are a bit more reclusive, and uh, as is, as is usually the way with writers. You know, um, I, I think Hemingway was also a, like a, a war correspondent. So, so in, in that sense, he, he was probably more out there, you know, in the world, uh, you know, facing uh, all kinds of danger and excitement. Um, I think most writers tend to be locked away and uh, reluctantly emerge to uh, promote their books. Absolutely. Thank you, Richard. Um to jump back into your book, B-Swing, uh, but also to continue along the line of books and bookstores, there's a wonderful scene early in your book where you describe a moment where you wandered into Watkins' bookshop and discovered the book Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. Mm-hmm. Um, you discovered a quote, a koan, that you found puzzling but more enlightening then the Presbyterian church services you had been dragged to as a child. Uh, can you talk to us about this moment of discovery and how this book, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, opened your mind and perhaps eventually uh, led you down a path of spirituality? Mm. I'm trying to remember the quote. I think it was uh, a man went searching uh, for... Oh, was it? A man was searching for fire with a lighted lamp. If he'd known what fire was, he could have cooked his meal much much sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, it's immediately puzzling. It's a kind of a puzzle. But it's a puzzle that you can't solve intellectually. Uh, the only way to solve the puzzle to understand what it's saying is to change as a human being, is to become a, a different person. Uh, and I found that very appealing. And... Um, you know, I probably rejected the, the religion of, of my parents really at the time because um, I didn't understand it. I, I, I just found it boring. Uh, and this, this seemed to me a far more, more exciting and more connected way of looking at the, at the universe. Um, so, you know, Watkins Bookshop in London, uh, it's, it's in this little alley, alleyway, right in the middle of town. And uh, it's very Harry Potterish, you know, and, and was back then. It was back in the sixties, mm. and it's uh, it's an occult bookshop, if you like, you know. So, so it sells all the tarot cards and uh, and, and the astrology stuff and, and all the accoutrements uh, along those lines. But it also has, you know, the A to Z of, of every spiritual uh, interest you could possibly uh, think of. You know, so A for anthroposophy, all the way to Z for Zen. You know, mm. and I read my way slowly through the shelves and and. Uh, I think I paused at the letter S for Sufi because I, I thought the Sufis were, were interesting people and they seem to have some answers. And um, as, as I'm taking an interest in in them, um, they virtually arrive on my doorstep. It's one of those things where, where you, it seems that you call things to, towards you. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it, it was as soon as I had the thought, this is who I want to meet, that they, they virtually rang my doorbell. I mean, it was, it was, it was that close. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Richard. Um, Back to your early days as a musician. I love Jimi Hendrix. Uh, One of my favorite moments early on in your book is when you describe Jimi as he hit the scene in London and how he would show up at shows and eventually ask or demand uh, to sit in with musicians who were playing. What was it like being a part of that scene? And for example, having Jimi Hendrix sit in with your band. For me, this seems almost mythological, but for you, it was just a part of everyday life. What was that scene like? 
Well, you know, the legends came later. Uh, <laughs> at the time, Jimmy was just a guy, you know, who'd, who'd be in the club every night and having a few drinks or having a meal. Um, we used to play at a club called the Speakeasy Club and um, in, in, the, in the West End, the centre of London. And things didn't really get rolling till about midnight where, when bands would come in after a show, um, perhaps playing out of town, uh, and they'd come in at 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, have something to eat, have a few drinks, relax, maybe have a dance and, and you'd see uh, everybody in there really. Um, and Fibber used to play them, you know, a couple of times a week for uh, incarnation, have a few drinks and, and feel a bit happy. And, and you'd say, mind if I sit in boys. <laughs> and um, I, th- I think Jimmy intimidated uh, all the guitar players on, on the London scene. You know, it's certainly Eric and, and, and Jeff Beck and, and Jimmy Page, all, all those guys were, were, were really intimidated by Hendrix because he could, he could just go a bit further. You know, he, he could do what you could do, but, but then he could take it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So for me as well, this is especially intimidating to, to have Jimmy, you know, there at the front of the stage asking to, asking to sit in. Um, but he was always very gracious and, and he, he never wanted to upstage anybody. He just wanted to be part of the band, you know, just play along stuff. I think we, we sometimes we played like like a Rolling Stone or something. Um, uh I think we did, we did East West by Paul Butterfield on one occasion. Um, he, he just he just enjoyed playing, and it's uh, a nice guy, a little shy maybe, you know, very sweet natured. Um, and the legend came later. Right. Do you think that type of artistic environment um, will ever happen again? Can it be reproduced? Well, it may be happening right now, and I just don't know about it. You know, there, there are still clubs, and, and they they work in a slightly different way. I don't know if there are clubs where you have live bands anymore. Mostly it's just kind of disco. Um, and I don't know how people mingle. I, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, um, um, it must have happened. I, I, in the punk era, there must have been some kind of similar thing going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of New York punk scene, there must have been something similar going on. Since then, I, I'm, I'm just out of touch. I couldn't tell you. Yeah, Um Probably nothing is happening much of anywhere right now, but hopefully in a few months, everyone will get back. Thank you, Richard. Finally, um, you mentioned your song, uh, Meet on the Ledge, earlier. You write about playing a song like this, which was written 50 years ago, uh, when you were a person who you may no, no longer remember. Uh, that was feeling things that you no longer feel. As a performer in the year 2021, how do you keep these songs fresh? And if you can't keep them fresh, how do you know when it is time to remove a song from your set list? You have to have an emotional connection to, to a song. Um, you know, the, the, that's the big thing. Um, there are lots of songs I don't play because I, I can't feel an emotional connection. That particular song, Meet on the Ledge, uh, you know, I, I view it as being, you know, a young man's song. It's a slightly naive song. It, it pretends to have a worldview, but I know it doesn't. Um, but, but it makes some assumptions that I, I think are, are fairly um, well-informed, actually, um, or fairly instinctive and, and, and correct about, about life. So um, I, I, I kind of honour the song because I know people in the audience would like to hear it. And I, I find different things in it uh, so that I can have that, that correct emotional connection to it. Thank you, Richard. Have you ever removed a song... Um from your set because you can no longer connect with it only to find yourself connecting with it anew at a later date? Uh, yes. Interesting question. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
I think um, almost every song that I've ever done uh, gets rotated. Uh, things get rotated in and out of the set list. And um, sometimes for a long time, it, it could be for, for like 20 years that, that, that a song that, that I've, I've played a lot and I get tired of and, and I can't find enthusiasm for will disappear and then come back, you know, later. Um, so that happens all the time, all the time. Uh, so things are being, are being brought in and, and left out. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Richard. And thank you for writing this wonderful book. I was really fascinated and enamored with it. It was so much more uh, than I thought it was going to be. And I found myself connecting with it in unexpected ways. If you listeners are fans of music, of literature, of conscious spirituality, you will love this book. I promise this is one that you cannot go wrong with. It provides fresh insight into Richard's music with Fairport Convention, with Linda Thompson, and with the scene that developed around Pink Floyd, Jimi Hendrix, and others. It is just a fascinating, fascinating book. Listeners, I've been speaking with Richard Thompson, author of B-Swing, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Richard. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Once again, I have been speaking with Richard Thompson, author of B-Swing, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books. You can order B-Swing at www.quillridgebooks.com. And if you're a member of Readers Club Plus, you can have it shipped to you for free. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been BOOKIN.